So I've kept diaries for the past 25 years, and every now and then, I'll pick up an old one and read through. And in 2006, on the final page of my 10th diary, I wrote a list titled, Famous People I've Interviewed. And it includes names like Jimmy Carter and Dorothy Hamill, Walter Payton and Lyndon LaRouche, Phil Mickelson, Rodney Dangerfield, Ken Griffey Jr., Juan Gonzalez, Michael Moore. And sitting here at age 50, my reaction is, who gives a shit? When I think about my career, the best interviews, the best people aren't the most famous. It's a guy at the bar who just lost his wife. It's the rabbi who adopted seven kids. It's the dog owner, the house builder, the lawyer, the cup stacker. It's people with unique stories to tell who are rarely, if ever, asked. My name is Jeff Perlman. I'm the New York Times bestselling author of nine books and the host of Two Writers, Sling and Yang, the podcast where one writer, me, talks writing with another writer every single week. And today's guest is Brad Manson, the kick-ass freelance sports photographer who shot some amazing images for places like Sports Illustrated and the National Sports Daily, and whose new book, 28, a photographic tribute to Buster Posey, is now out. This is episode number 275. Let's sling some yay. Dad, your podcast sucks, and you smell like vinegar and cottage cheese. All right, Brad. First of all, thank you so much for doing You are the first photographer in the long and non-illustrious history of two writers slinging yang to appear in this podcast. So you're making non-history today. Congratulations on that. Well, thanks, Jeff. And I hope I'm not the first photographer that's uh, listened to your podcast. <laughs> you might be. You have a book that just came out. It's called 28, a photographic tribute to Buster Posey. And before we get into that, which I really do want to get into, I am fascinated by something. So I've known you for a long time because you used to shoot for Sports Illustrated when I was at Sports Illustrated. And I did a lot of um, a lot of stories. I was accompanied. My photographer would be Vijay Lavero, the late, fantastic Vijay Lavero, who you were very close with and worked with. And um, we discussed this recently over DM. And I've, I've already thought about it because I always think about it in writer's terms, which is I always think, oh, it's been so it's so much harder to be a writer now. It's so much harder to be a writer. And I was thinking about all those great photographers who I worked with at Sports Illustrated and they were legendary to me and you would be assigned one and you would just be like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm working with this guy. I can't believe I'm working with this guy. And you're saying in 2022, the landscape for these guys, these great photographers is shit, correct? Very correct. What happened? Well, you know, unfortunately, you know, the whole publishing thing you know, when, when you're working first as a photographer, you know, much like a writer back in the day, you know, getting to work for Sports Illustrated was just the pinnacle. You know, I went to school back in the 80s wanting to be a newspaper photographer and majored in photojournalism and and just, you know, gosh, that's all I thought was ever really possible. And then getting a chance to work for Sports Illustrated and and work alongside these incredible legends like V.J. Lavero and on the West Coast here, John McDonough and Peter Reed Miller and Robert Beck and and such, um, you know, they're the best of the best, the best stars of the country, best in the world. And Sports Illustrated was this incredible magazine that, you know, they printed 3.2 million of them every Monday night slash Tuesday morning and and they hit mailboxes every Wednesday and Thursday all over. And, you know, before the Internet and if you wanted to get seen, that's how you got 
people saw your pictures and, and along with great writing and, and, and we had great editors and, and people cared about what went in the magazine and, and it was, it was just the pinnacle. And you, you never could imagine a day when that magazine wouldn't exist. And, you know, things started to change and we saw it slowly coming. We just didn't think it would all come this fast when suddenly now Sports Illustrated is barely existing as a monthly that is planned two months in advance with features. And, you know, we both have friends that are still working there trying to fight the good fight and do good things with what they can. And none of none of what's happened is, is their fault as, as they try and, and put out a product, but it's just, it's my gosh, the whole, you know, but from advertising to the phones, to how people consume stories and everything, it's, um, it changed, it just changed so much. I mean, we, the money that was spent to, to get the best pictures, the best coverage, you know, throwing a lot of photographers at a given, you know, big football game or baseball game to get all the great angles and, and to get the best pictures. And Steve Fine was our director of photography and, you know, he demanded the best. And if you didn't do a good job, you didn't work again. And, um, and just people cared so much. And bottom line is, there's very few people, if at all, out there right now that will pay money for special exclusive content for from photographers. It's just a lot of small pictures that run on phones or websites. And um, and just it's it's just uh, it's just no one wants to pay. When did that was it the sort of digitalization that started sort of the transition? You know, slowly it it. it you know, back in the day, without getting too technical, for the printed page, you needed to shoot slide film, color transparency film for reproduction. Um, newspapers and wire services shot more black and white back in the day or then color negative film or then early bad digital cameras that produced a, fi a file that couldn't run in a glossy magazine. We were shooting color transparency film that we would then have to go to an airport, put the raw film on a red eye flight, you know, to, to the Newark airport. So our film could be processed in the time life lab on deadline where it could be reproduced beautifully in the magazine. And they needed our exclusive content to, to look beautiful in the magazine. The magazine couldn't look bad with badly reproduced pictures. And we switched over to digital in 2003 when Canon finally came out with a camera that they deemed good enough to make a file that would reproduce two pages in the magazine. They shut down the Time Life Lab in 2003. We all switched to digital. There was no more film. And now our pictures look the same as everyone else's. So now outside pictures were much more light, able to be reproduced in the magazine and that slowly started you know and uh, a bean counter could say well why do we need to send a photographer to this event when there are you know certain wire services are at this game you know we don't need to be there uh, because someone so is is there and 
and it's slowly, you know, even though the, Steve Vine used to always say, you know, the name of the magazine is Sports Fucking Illustrated. They're, they were never run a wire story, but they would gladly run wire pictures. And because the, the stories, and I'm a big fan of writers, very, we always joke, the only people that would read bylines or photo credits are other photographers and your mom. You know, it's like, who really cares what the photo credit is? And it kills me to say that. But, you know, you wanted to read, you know, Peter King, you know, or, or whoever, Tom Verducci. And, and, you know, the writers, you know, would really sell stuff. And I don't know how many people really cared who took the pictures. So I have in front of me an article from The New Republic from 2015. And the headline is Sports Illustrated fired all of its photographers. Does it matter? And obviously for people who worked at the magazine and former people like myself who worked at the magazine, there was a huge outrage that they got rid of all the photographers. But I ask you as a photographer, I hate to say, like, did it really matter? First of all, I, I need to clarify. I was a Bay Area local freelance photographer who did a lot of work for the magazine. I did some regional traveling. I did spring training for many, many years in Arizona, did lots of West Coast events. I was never one of the big, I was never a staff photographer. I was never a, someone who did the Olympics, Super Bowls and stuff, but I did a lot of cool things for the magazine. Um, you know, they had incredible staff photographers who just, these photographers were, you know, they're, they're the ones that, that set the bar and, you know, <laughs> to me, it mattered because they made special pictures and but everything has been dummied down so much. And I don't know, you know, it's like, you know, who really does the public really notice the difference between a good picture and a great picture? And and, you know, it'd be like, you know, you judging a writing contest and like, oh, look at how the way this writer turn this phrase or, or, you know, or, you know, I've, I've, I've listened to you talk to other writers about, you know, you are always specific, you know, you can't just write that so-and-so was drinking a soft drink. It has to be a Coke or a Pepsi or a Mountain Dew, you know, you, you have to be descriptive and there's certain things that a photographer does that makes their picture special. The way that we would cover an event or, uh, the way we documented, you know, your one of your favorite subjects, Barry Bonds's home run chase that nobody cared about, but we still tried to make the best pictures from different angles that no one else had, you know. And nowadays, it's just like, you know, with the closing of all these newspapers and the gutting of newsrooms and city council meetings don't get covered and just news doesn't get covered. So, you know, the the press is the watchdogs for lots of things, including sports. If photographers aren't out there making great pictures, things aren't getting photographed like they used to be. And it's quite frankly, it's a shame. It's a shame that that Robert Beck isn't out there, you know, covering golf like he used to, that that, that Peter E. Miller isn't out there shooting football like he used to for Sports Illustrated, that John McDonough's not out there doing the basketball that he used to, um, that Al Thielmans isn't out there just being Al Thielmans and just kicking everyone's ass. 
every week. You know, it's it's a uh, it's these photographers are better than the others. All right. So for the for the casual listener who might not know, let's just we'll go hypothetical. Let's say you send Al Tiomans to a Phillies game. OK. And I was a great, great photographer at SI and a joy to work with. You send Al to a Phillies game and you send a college newspaper photographer to a Phillies game and they both have the same camera, you know, relative equipment. What is the difference? Well, it's it's, you know, Al (laughs) Al's nuts in the best way possible. You know, he Al is a father who's both his his boys are out of the house now and he's still coaching kids playing baseball. He's not really even taking pictures anymore. He's selling his gear. He's semi-retired, mostly retired now. Al knows the game of baseball, loves the game of baseball. He knows what's going to happen in the game. He knows who's a pull hitter, who goes the other way, who's going to do this, who's got the good arm, who's got the weak arm, where the where the play is going to happen. Al knows where the pictures are going to be made. Now, you could have a young photographer who's got really good camera gear that autofocuses well because the new cameras are scary, amazing. And technically, the, the pictures might be fine and any photographer could point the camera and have the autofocus capture something, but chances are they're just not going to know to react, where to point the camera, the nuances, especially baseball. Baseball is a game where nothing happens, especially nowadays, really nothing happens. And it's so slow. You have to really love it and get it. And it's just, you know, it's, 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 over a long haul, you know, Al is going to make pictures. But if you're just looking at little itty bitty pictures on a phone, you know, to, to fit in with a little, you know, gallery of, of, of something, you know, it, it's not going to matter as much if you're looking to fill, you know, a two page spread in a glossy magazine. Right. Um, you uh, you've had a very interesting career. Again, I know you from your time shooting for SI when I was an SI baseball writer. But you start as an intern at the Contra Costa Times. Uh, this is in the late 80s. Then you, re- you went to the San Ramon Valley Times for 18 months. Uh, then you went to the back to the Contra Costa Times for one month. Then you worked for the National, the uh, Frank DeFord, legendary Frank DeFord uh, sports daily newspaper that lasted about a year. You went to AP for three months. You went to the Freeman Argus for eight months. And then... Um, Again, our mutual friend, Vijay Lavero, the late Vijay Lavero, who's a wonderful photographer and a great guy, sort of took you under his wing and said, you could do better doing freelance and and you will make more money doing freelance and I will help you do freelance. And you've been a freelancer ever since. And um, I'm kind of fascinated. Like, here we are. The business isn't for both of us. The business is not what it once was. Um, What keeps you shooting? What keeps you going to Giants games? What keeps you doing it? Well, the last bunch of years have been just a, a bloodbath. It is it's it has not been good. I mean, especially with the, the pandemic and and such. I mean, I I couldn't I could not survive today without um, help from financially. I have an older sister, Paula, who helps me out a lot these days. I um, 
I, um, you know, I, one thing I learned at an early age is to try to never sign a bad contract and retain my copyright and my images. I'm able to license my images to different clients. And um, um, I worked hard over the years to caption and catalog and archive my images. I have an online searchable gallery of over 130,000 images going back to 1987 that I utilize that, that helps out a lot. Um, and since I built this archive, I don't want it to end. So I go out most of the time when I'm out at the ballpark these days, I'm out for myself, just keeping my archive going. Um, I also have uh, worked with the wonderful folks at the baseball hall of fame in Cooperstown over the years that I've donated my work to them where they have free access to my archive to use any pictures for any internal promotional usage that they need. I've also sent them thousands and thousands of slides that I've gotten back from the magazine. I, I've just been doing baseball for 35 years and I don't want it to end because I have pictures of pretty much everyone who's played since 1987. Um, the money is, you know, the money's not there. I mean, this year I've literally been paid to shoot two baseball games. And that was only because uh, the nice people at the San Francisco Giants hired me to shoot two games way back in May because uh, one of their team photographers uh, got COVID and they needed help and they were nice enough to reach out to me. Um, you know, there's no one that'll pay you, you know, uh, over slave labor pretty much to photograph a baseball game. And, and uh, it's, uh, and it's just kind of the way it is these days. And, and it's, you know, and the camera gear, my cameras are 10 years old. Uh, the, the gears is ridiculously expensive. I mean, I, I, I had to beg Canon to loan me a camera that, that works, that's new because I mean, the cameras are six and $7,000 a piece. I mean, no normal person could afford the camera gear these days. It's just an absolute joke uh, compared to how it used to be. Um, you know, the, 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 the lenses you need, the lens you need is $12,000. The cameras are six and $7,000 a piece. And you have photographers that are shooting games for like $100 and $200 a game and having to pay for their own gas or their own parking and giving up their copyright. You know, it's just, uh, I just, I, I refuse to do that. So it's, um, it's it's just a major bummer compared to how it used to be. And, and it, you know, it's not going to change and, you know, that's no complaining or anything. it's just it's it's what's happened. And it's happened, you know, obviously more to more than just photographers. Things have just everything's changed. Have you thought about quitting? Oh, well, I you know, I. Not not because. Actually, because I'm a creative person, the joy I get from going to a game, seeing the few remaining friends I have left at the ballpark, and this could be security guards, different people around the stadium, groundskeepers, some of the photographers that are left that I know. But when I get some good pictures and I come home and download them onto my computer and know that these are mine and I shot this new rookie Julio Rodriguez, the great new rookie center fielder for the um, Seattle Mariners. I photographed him in Oakland the other night for the first time. And, you know, I needed to shoot him for my archive. 
and it was a lot of fun to finally get a chance to shoot him and have him. And um, is it like a collection? Do you view it as like, all right, yes, I've added this guy, I've added this guy, I got this guy. Yeah, especially because you know when you as you know because I'm proud that I have started in '87 and that I'm organized and I own all that material and you know, and, and, and that I'm still going and still shooting all these new people. And um, yeah, it's, and I love, I love the game of baseball. I, I, I am not a fan of the owners and the, and the, and the corporate league that runs things and all the really rotten people in charge of the game are just, yeah. are not good people, but I enjoy, I still like the game. I still like it. And I'm spoiled here in the Bay area. It's very relaxed. I mean, the Oakland Coliseum where there's no fans and it's this raw, bizarre, goofy place. It's, it's, it sounds funny, but you, you could probably appreciate this. It's, it's one of the oldest, like home type places I have it left in my life. I went to my first game. There as a fan in 1972, 50 years ago. And it's one of the only familiar places I have left in my life. I can't go back to my childhood home. I can't go back pretty much anywhere, but I can go back to the Oakland Coliseum because I've been going there for 50 years and the damn place hasn't changed. Yeah. Now I got to the same, you know, we shoot, I shoot pictures next to the legend, Michael Zagaris sitting in a folding chair in the dirt, you know, at first or third base. I mean, they let us get away with murder there. I mean, it's unbelievable. It's just, it's, it's awesome. Who is the okay? Who is the who is your all time favorite player to shoot and why? This is, and I'm not just kissing your ass, and it, it gets nostalgic. And it was so long ago, but I tell you, near the top of the list is, and I got it. It was so few games, but Bo Jackson was pretty fucking amazing. I shot so few games of him and more it made more incredible pictures because he was such this crazy athlete. And you know, I'm I'm glad I got pictures of him that are that are good pictures, some of which are many of them are in your upcoming book, which yep. I'm super pumped about. Yeah. Um you took the best picture I've seen of him breaking a bat. That was a good I shot that for the Contra Costa Times and like a week later, I got hired by Neil Leifer at the National. When you're looking at a guy like Bo Jackson, I'm not trying to pump my book. I'm actually interested in this. Like, <laughs> I always find one of the things I find visually fascinating about him is it always looks like his body is bursting out of his uniform because he was so muscular. Right. Does and he wore add- it really tight. And he wore it really tight. And he wore really <laughs> tight. Does that add to it? Is there something about the way a guy wears his uniform, wears his socks, blah, blah, well, blah? Well, and, and the way he moves. Like, the other guy that reminded me of him – and he just flamed out was Yasiel Puig. Yeah. Puig, like when he was just doing really well with the Dodgers, when he first got rolling, just him running to first base sounded like a horse gallop. Like if you were shooting down near first base on the field, the athleticism, his body just, oh my God. And, and, and Bo Jackson, I mean, he just, every game I shot him, he was either making a diving catch in the outfield, breaking a bat over his knee, do, you know, hitting a 
hit one of the longest home runs I ever saw hit in the Oakland Coliseum into the second deck over a Budweiser sign yep. in a day game in 1990. It was just crazy. Um, it was just, you know, and it was at the height of, of Bono's, you know, the whole, I mean, it was just it was crazy. And, um, you know, and, and, and then, you know, me coming off like a complete whore, the guy who I have a book, a book just coming out with Buster Posey. I always love catchers because they're around the plate. There's always stuff going on with their catcher's gear and plays at the plate and such. And we're able to shoot close to catchers as a photographer, depending on the ballpark you're working at. And, but usually a lot of times, whatever catcher plays for your team that you shoot a lot is not a very good player. So nobody cares, but the Giants got Buster Posey as a great rookie in 2010 and they start and they win and he's really good. And so I finally had a really good catcher to shoot and I just knew that he was something special and I just shot the hell out of him during his career. So by the time he retired, I knew I had a really great set of pictures of him and it's fun when you can shoot a lot of pictures of one ball player and have them. You can't have every picture of a guy being a baseball card of him swinging a bat. Like it'd be tough to have, you couldn't have an amazing set of pictures of a center fielder as varied because he's out in center field and there's only so many pictures you can make of a guy at center field. But if this guy's catching, there's so many pictures you can make of him around the plate besides when he's at bat and stuff. And so catchers are great to shoot. So you have a book coming out, 28 a photographic tribute to Buster Posey. Here's my question. The book is beautiful. The photos are beautiful. It's a book about one person. So it's over and over, Buster Posey, Buster Posey. And obviously in San Francisco, Buster Posey has become an iconic giant player in the way Willie Mays was and Orlando Cepeda was and these guys are. Um, is it hard when you're putting together so many pictures of one guy to find unique, original sort of ways to tell a photographic story? You know, with him, it wasn't... I mean, I I hate everything, most everything I do. I, I started with 150 pictures... And we ran a little bit less than that. It's trying to come up with variety, different things. Again, this is, it's, it is a regional book. It's not, it's not meant for the Southern California, Orange County market. Well, you know, Buster Posey has a national fan base. So I'm like, you know, there yeah. are fans of Buster Posey. Yeah. So the one thing that is cool is, that, that I'm pretty proud of is uh, working with my buddy, Brian Murphy. We gathered it besides the pictures. There's some really good essays written by, yeah, very by, by teammates and, and, and different um, managers and stuff. And, um, uh, and it's, and it's also when you, when you're able to shoot one player in the same uniform in the same venue over a period of time, you see that person age, you see the face change, you see the body change. Yeah. And so that's kind of cool to go from the beginning to the end and see that changeover. And it's not, you know, the, he doesn't play for five teams and that whole thing. So there is the continuity. And, and again, because I'm there from the beginning and it is, you know, I, I always think it's cool when you can see 
one person or one subject through the eyes of one photographer. And it's not just a compilation of a whole bunch of wire pictures or pictures from the shop from a whole bunch of people. But this is this is just like, you know, one writer writing about one subject. This is this is my take on him. And over the years, I'm always trying to shoot him from different angles. And so the pictures are shot from all over the ballpark, everywhere from the right field foul pole to behind home plate to left field to all over the place. And so, you know, there's, there is a lot of variety in there. Well, yeah, I think it's very funny. I, you may not feel this way, but I do actually. Um, when I was covering baseball, I'll use Sean Green as an example. Okay. I, I wrote about Sean. No, I'm actually, Sean Green is one of like the three guys I covered who I'm actually friends with now. So it doesn't totally work. I'm going to interrupt. Did you do the story? The, the VJ story of the, the picture with him at the deli. No, I was so pissed off. That was Bamberger, who was obviously was great, but I was all in on the Sean Green train from the beginning. And I was a young, I think I was a writer reporter at that point. And when they gave it to Bamberger, who obviously is a great writer, I was so pissed off. I was like, Sean Green, that's my guy. But I was going to say like, as a writer and probably as a photographer, you feel like you grow up with these guys, like Sean Green, I'd see him through the years. But the funny thing is, I don't think they feel that way about us. Oh, God, no. <laughs> Absolutely think, not. Like, no. Buster wasn't coming up to you going like, Brad, I noticed you have a mustache or whatever. Brad, <laughs> it, how's the cat? Right? No, nothing. Right? They don't care. No. Well, and, and I have nothing to say. I have, like, zero outgoing personality. And Buster has nothing to say, um, <laughs> you know, because he's a low-key guy. And, yeah. you know, we knew each other. I, I got it's been a funny, weird thing. I somehow I met his his sister. One of his, his sister had emailed me to a blog post I wrote when he was in 09 when he came up. And then I met his mom. She was a special ed teacher in their hometown of Leesburg, Georgia. And and. I would email her pictures of him like, oh, here's what Buster did today. They're a real nice family. Uh-huh. And and I had donated pictures of him to for a fundraiser that her school was doing years ago that he would sign these prints that I had made to raise money for her school. And and they're really nice people. And but I would never bug him. You know, I head nod or whatever. And and. You know, I did talk to him after his uh, retirement press conference in November just to to say hello and congratulate him and stuff. And um, and he said, thanks, thanks, Brian. Yeah, exactly. No, wait, tell me that doesn't tell me that doesn't remind you of the old VJ Lavera story, which he used to tell all the time, which is he sent a beer to Will Clark and he came over and said, thanks. Thanks, BJ. Thanks, BJ. <laughs> Yeah. I, it, it, oh God. Yeah. VJ had the best stories. Oh my God. They, you know, Oh, Will. Yeah. Will hit him. There was another story. BJ, I had a really tough day. I mean, Will just yelling at VJ once after, you know, yeah. but VJ made the great cover of Will and McGuire. Oh yeah. The, but he got him drunk. He brought him beer. It was behind the right field wall at Phoenix Muni Stadium, spring training. And they were drinking beers, Will and, and McGuire. 
And there ends up, there's an outtake where they're wearing each other's hats. McGuire's wearing a Giants hat and Will's wearing an A's hat. Wow. Because they're drunk. Yeah. It's That's awesome. Classic VJ. That's awesome. Sorry. So you, does it help if you, like, you did not have that relationship with Buster Posey. You had a professional relationship with him. Does it help as but a it, doctor? But, it, but it, it was good because that's how he is. And he appreciated what I did. And I wanted to do the book with, he, Buster doesn't do anything. He's very low key. But we thought if we could get him to cooperate with the book and, and have a portion of the money go to this, this charity that him and his wife do for pediatric cancer, it would be a really cool thing. It'd be cool for the fans to be able to yeah. be a part of something that he's a part of. And he agreed to do it immediately, agreed to do it immediately because it was me. And he liked what I did and which was a big deal. I mean, it's because he hasn't done anything since he retired, right. but he wanted to be on board with this, which was a very cool thing. He, he trusted us to do this. And, and he gave us 6,000 words of an essay that was really said some cool things in there. Um, That's awesome. If I was some clown who would always like talk to him and, and drive him nuts, you know, that wouldn't have happened. Before we continue with two writers slinging Yang, a quick word from our sponsor. Hey, this is Jeff Perlman. I'm here with my daughter, Casey, who is very angry about the results of the VMA Awards. I am never leaving my room again. Never. Don't worry, Casey. Seventeen will get another chance next year. Not as best new artist, Dad. You only have one shot. I'm devastated. You know, I spoke with Mingyu and Jung Han and Hoshi and Wan Wu and DK and The Eight and Joshua and June, and S-Coops, and Woozy, and Vernon, and Sung Kwan. What about Dino? Did you talk to Dino? Yeah, yeah, I talked to Dino too. And I told them I was going to go to RoyalRetros.com and order them all throwback USFL jerseys. Stitched, vintage, retro. And even though it was just over the phone, I could tell they were smiling. Because now, thanks to the kings of throwback merchandise, they're winners too. Wow, Dad, you're the best. No, honey, Duff Cameron is the best. That's a low blow. I got to ask you about my favorite subject in the world, which would be a guy you photographed and I wrote about a lot, Barry Bonds. Uh, I still remember seeing you in the parking lot at the ballpark during a game, putting those cards under windshield wipers. I think you took a picture of it. And I actually think that picture is on Getty somewhere. Not joking. No, that was, uh, was that not buddy Eric Risberg shot that for the AP. Oh yeah. I have no idea why. Yeah. I don't, I'm sure millions of people are buying that photo of me putting uh, postcards. I'm sure the AP is making a lot of money. Wait, so um, you shot him for a long time. Yes. From Okay. And from obviously, as we've discussed, and as you know, from my vantage point, from the reporter's vantage point, that guy was a fucking nightmare times a thousand. Right. From your vantage point, I'm guessing he was fantastic. Well, yeah, see, I, I'm not a portrait photographer. Like, I was never someone who would... I was not the photographer that an editor would call to set up lights and do studio shoots. Like our friend, we keep talking about VJ Lavero would do these. He did the amazing Sean Green portrait in Cantor's deli for the great. So for the story that you did not get to do. Damn it. It was great. I was wrong. You don't call me to photograph Sean Green in Cantor's deli. You call VJ. So you would never call me to try and shoot Barry Bonds 
in a studio setting of which he would then blow off the photographer. Ron Madre, the famous yeah, Ron Madre that, cable car. The cable car museum. Mm-hmm. Um, so I never really dealt with him. I would just shoot him as he played. And I started shooting him like crazy his first year with the Giants in 93 when he was, I was so people because I never saw Mays play in person. You know, that first year of Bonds in 93 when the Giants famously won 103 games and didn't make the playoffs, Dusty Baker's first year in San Francisco managing the team. It was like the single greatest year of baseball I ever saw in my life because he he could still play in the field. He still was a gold glove left fielder. He, you know, he never had a good arm, but he had this spin move. Any ball down the left field line, he would glove with his right hand. He always said that Bill Verdon with the Pirates taught him this, and he would spin and throw to second. No one would run on, no one, everything was a single down the line. And he hit and for average and power and RB and clutch and Wait, Brad, I just want to say people talk about Bonds and now they remember the, you know, the steroided 70 home run guy. 1993 with the Giants, when he was still a little guy, he had 46 home runs, 123 RBIs, 29 stolen bases, hit 336 on base percentage of 458, won a gold glove. Like the guy, if that's not his best season, I'll argue with you forever. I think that's his best year. Oh, he was incredible. No, that was his best. That was. And, you know, the 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 thing that all the sabermetrics, you know, they'll like to talk about the the clutch gene or whatever. You want to call. I mean, every time they needed a hit, you know, and and down the stretch. When they were they had gone to the tank and lost eight in a row in September. And now they were chasing the Braves and they had to win every game and they had four games in L.A. and they needed to win every one of them. And like the Friday night game in LA, he hits two, three round homers to lead them. I mean, he was just bonkers hitting home runs every night. You know, it wasn't his fault that they got smoked, uh, you know, like 15 to one or whatever it was on the, the final game of the season. He was amazing. Yeah. You know, he was, he was great. That year. You know, that was, yeah. I mean, and you look at pictures of him that I have and, you know, he was a different looking Dude, you know, and he was playing with Will Clark and and Matt Williams and Robbie Thompson and all those guys. Wait, so I've never asked a photographer this. For me, I look back and I think like, I really do. I think, how did I notice this at the time? Like, I really didn't. Like, it's easy to be like, oh, Maguire Sosa. It was so obvious. I didn't really notice it. You're looking at these guys through a very tight lens. Okay, you're looking at Barry Bonds and you saw him in 93 and then you saw him in 98 and you saw him in 99. And are you like this is utterly preposterous or are you just a dumb photographer? Just like I was a dumb writer. And you're like, this is great. I have no idea. Well, it's fine. I, you know, I go, well, first, first I go back to, I go back to the first time I ever remember hearing about steroids and few people bring this up and it's McGuire, no, Canseco, the A's are playing in Boston, and I believe it was the 88 ALCS. And it was their Red Sox fans were chanting steroids at Conseco. Right. And this was because um, the, the Washington Post, Tom Boswell, yeah. had written something about Conseco. This was way, and, 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 and Conseco flexed 
famously flexed, I remember. I mean, so there were early Conseco rumors, you know, way back then. And but I did not cover the big the big Maguire Sosa stuff so much because it was all back in the Midwest. You know, I shot them when they came out here. So I wasn't like a lot of my friends just shot all that stuff. And the whole Bonds thing, it's funny. I mean, it's it's like you you saw it. Hey, because you look at the pictures and there's a first that first spring training of 99. And my good friend, I bring him again, Eric Risberg, who's been with the Associated Press here in San Francisco for 40 years. He's cover spring training every year in Scottsdale. He's got a picture, famous picture that's on the wire and it's bonds in a tight shirt in Scottsdale in 99. And it's like, that was famously the first, like after 98, after McGuire and, and Sosa bond, that's what he just said. Fuck it. And you see this picture of bonds in a tight, tight shirt, just bursting out of it. Yeah. Eric Risberg, AP 1999 Scottsdale. And I was like, Whoa. And well, I wrote about in my uh, bonds biography, I wrote about him and Griffey. Griffey denies this, but I know it's true. I have sourcing him and Griffey. Um, Bonds came down to visit Griffey in Florida after that McGuire Sosa season. And Bonds is basically like, fuck this. Like if these right. guys, if they're not as good as I am, which they weren't, right. these guys are going to do this, especially Sosa. I mean, that was a joke. Right. Um, if these guys are going to do this and make a lot of money and get the attention and get the endorsements, why am I just going to sit here and not do it? And it's not an entirely ridiculous point to make. I'm not saying I agree with cheating, but I do understand right. where you're coming from if you're him, you know? Right. Oh, well, and, and with his ego and he, and he would wear the picture, the Risberg picture from spring training was so startling because Bonds' jerseys, his uniform were so loose and blousey, yeah. you know, you, you, you never really saw underneath and, 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 you know, it was just such a, so different to see him like that. Um, you know, as his body changed and, and it's, it's, it was just, it was such a weird time. It was such a weird time, you know, and, and, and well, then it was weird. Cause then he was hurt. He was hurt in 99. He was out for half the season. Um, you know, and then they opened the new ballpark in 2000 and, and, and then, you know, everything just kind of took off from there. I just want to say, it's funny. I looked up the Boswell column you met, you referenced. So back in uh, 19, 1988, Thomas Boswell of the Washington Post, a great columnist who retired last year, um, alleged, basically put it out there that he thinks Conseco is using steroids. And it's, Conseco's response was, I have no idea how he got that thought in his head. And it's like, uh, yeah, maybe, maybe it wasn't that hard to figure out. Um, wait, here's a question for you. You said that you would call a guy like VJ if you wanted a portrait. If you wanted Sean Green in a Cantor's Deli portrait, you call VJ. If you want to shoot a game, you're a guy to shoot a game. Why are those skills so separate? If we wanted you to take a great portrait photo of Sean Green in a Jewish deli, are you really not the guy to do it, or could you do a solid job? Especially back then, when it was, everything was on film, on slide film, everything was super critical, the lighting and needing 
to know how to use studio lights and the exposures and using different assistants and knowing where to place the lights and how to do it and to do it really well and have it be perfect. And you usually have to shoot a medium format camera, like with a house of Vlad and have it be this, is especially for SI, it had to be amazing because it's going to run as a cover or as an opener and quality has to be perfect. And that was something that I was, it's nerve wracking and it's a lot of work and a lot of setup and something that I was never that comfortable. I never learned how to do it. Well, my brain, certain people, I have a lot of friends that are great port stars that can walk into a room and say, I need to put a light there. I need to put a light there. I mean, we're going to do this. And, and, and it's a lot of, there's a lot of math about lighting ratios and just stuff. And, and I was not good at that. And, and I was, a, I was, it got in my head and I just, I just, I, I, I sucked at it. And, you know, it's, it's, I could do it on a smaller stage. I could do it for a newspaper where it wasn't that much pressure. But again, I was working for Sports Illustrated and they hired the best people to do the best thing. And if they wanted a portrait, they were going to, you know, they had VJ or Peter Reed Miller or somebody out here, um, you know, or they had some portrait stars that, only did portraits, you know, they had some staff photographers that could do the action and the portrait and everything. Then they had some portrait photographers that just, you know, couldn't shoot a football game to say that they never would, but they would hire them just to do a portrait um, because it was that special. So it's a whole different kind of thing. It's a lot easier now with digital because you can like move lights around and then shoot a picture and see it on the back of the camera and see, but when you were shooting Chrome and it had to be perfect and, and it just, this nerve wracking. And then you shoot and you still don't know what you have. And then you got to put the film on an airplane in New York and you're, you can't sleep at night because you don't know what the hell is going to happen when the plane lands and the film goes to the lab. And then you're waiting for the phone call the next day. See if Steve's going to call and scream at you or, or worse yet, you don't get a phone call. So then you call them and then you're afraid who's going to answer and what the tone of voice is going to be, you know, and then you're never going to work again. It's just, it's fucked. They fuck with your head. You nailed that perfectly. And I, I feel like, again, it's hard for me to be younger journalists coming up to understand this. Like when we were at Sports Illustrated, you would hand something in and it would be fucking terrifying to hear back from the editor. It would be terrifying. Yes. And the longer you would wait to hear, the worse it got. And you would build it up in your head. They hate it. They're never going to use me again. And there were stretches I went through. Well, they didn't use me. They were like, that last story was really bad. We're not sending you here. And it was really terrifying. Especially on the West Coast, because I was on the West Coast, and, and we would, after a game, it was United 78 out of SFO to Newark. And and you, this is film that's raw film. It's not developed. So you don't know. You put the film in a bag, and the bag goes in like a pizza box looking thing. And you ship it from Air Cargo. And then you call Bob Ryan, the courier, who was this great old guy. He said, hey, Bob, this is Brad. I got, you know, Niners, Jets, you know, United Air Bill, blah, 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 blah. He goes, all right, kid, I got it. See you later. And then you go to bed. And by the time you wake up in the morning, it's three hours ahead. They've already developed the film, edited it, but they haven't called because they're not going to call. And then you're like, you think you 
might have one good picture, but you don't know because you haven't seen it. Then you're hoping your exposure is right. You're hoping it's in focus. So then you wait all day and it's Monday, it's closing day. And you don't know if the story's running, if you got a picture, who knows? You might have a cover or a double truck or something. And then you call the editor and it, it's like, you know, hey, how's the film look? You know, and, and it's like, oh, you did fine, but they killed the story. And then they hang up on you or or look good, but you didn't get anything in or, or you know, it, it's just like, and you're dying. You're just dying. Would making the cover of SI, you had 10 covers at SI, did the, would being on the cover mean as much to you as it meant to me as a writer? Well, I would fucking think it would make more since it was the pitch. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was the, the whole cover, except back then we didn't get our names on the, on the, on the cover. We, we, they do now. Um, yeah. I mean, it's the cover. It's, you know, I mean, if you're Neil or Walter, you got hundreds of them or Peter Miller or John Beaver, you have hundreds, literally hundreds of them. Right. Yeah. I mean, if, if, if you have the cover, it's like the joke was you, you wanted to go to the airport to one of the airport newsstands, just so you could see one of those displays with like a whole bunch of your covers all in a row. Okay. Now they would sometimes do that to be able to see your cover I mean, the first time I ever got a cover, the earliest you could get it was usually like the Oakland airport newsstand would get it on like Wednesday at noon. And I would go to the Oakland airport and go through security to go to, to get the magazine like the first time I remember, yeah. you know, it was it was a thrill because right. because this is before the Internet or like that magazine was available. Like if you work for a newspaper, it's only available here. That magazine, there were over 3 million of them, and you could get it anywhere in this country. It's a crazy, it's a bonkers feeling. Yeah. That your work could be seen everywhere. AKA the internet. Yes. <laughs> and then wow. SI came out and they were on CompuServe. I always ask every writer this. I have to ask you this. What is your work? Not counting like the shitty state of the business. What is your worst moment as a sports photographer? I will recount this story. This might not be my single worst, but it is a pretty bad one. And I'll, I'll, um, it's a, it's a, it's a good one. Uh, Derek Jeter's walk off home run in the world series in 2001, when he became Mr. November, uh -huh. I ran out of film after he hit the ball. Um, these days, kids, you don't have to worry about running out of film back in the day. You only had 36 exposures. And so if it was a big moment, you would always like take the roll of film out at like 15 or 20 and put in a fresh roll of film. And I'm at third base at old Yankee stadium. You were at the two, you were at the 2001 world. Series. I was, I was, it was exciting as hell. And I'm at third base next to my buddy, Robert seal, who was a staffer with the sporting news when the sporting news was still the sporting news and Jeter swings. And I have pictures of the swing and I'm shooting film Fuji, 800 color neg and I have the swing and he's going up to first base and I'm shooting and he just gets to the bag at first and you get to the end of the roll and, it, and it, you hear the whir and it's automatically rewinding as he rounds the bag at oh. first pumps his fists in the air 
and then rounds the bag at second and is pumping his fist. And I got nothing because the film is rewinding. And, and back in those days, guys like me could change film really fast, but it all happens so fast. He rounds the bases, scores, old Yankee Stadium. It was one of the most exciting things I've ever been at. The ground shook. It was absolute crazy bedlam. I got the swing, but I don't have anything else because I ran out of fucking film. And that was 21 years ago. And um, I'm still pretty bitter about that. Wait, let me ask you a final, final, final question. I never covered baseball candlestick. I remember in 1984 when I was 12, we took, my parents took us from New York to California and I begged them, I want to go to a Giants game. I'd never been to a baseball game anywhere but Shea and Yankee Stadium. It was Mets, Giants. It was Mike Kruko against Dwight Gooden. Um, No one in my family cared about sports except me. We got autographs from George Foster and Kelvin Chapman, the Mets infielder. And then we froze our asses off for seven innings until we left early. Um, Was Candlestick an awful place to shoot or a great place to shoot? It was, here's, you'll love it. It was great. And what kills me is I literally have dreams that I can go back and shoot there and that they, the Giants are going to have a weekend where they go back and play there against the Dodgers because they played their last game there in 99. And I look at myself as still a young, stupid photographer when they played there in 99, because as I've gone through my archives and scanned all my old slides and seen all my old pictures that I shot there from 87 to 99, I see what I shot uh, and, I have some good pictures, but I want to strangle that young photographer for not taking advantage of some of the unique angles we had, some of the places we could shoot. There were, um, we had this entire old school, like backstop you could shoot from that no other park in the country had. And they had all these angles and things we could do there. And I didn't, I was just still learning. And, and if I knew now, I sound like an old pitcher, an old broken down pitcher that's got no arm, but has the smart. If I knew then what I know now, and I could go back there and shoot. It was a great place to shoot. And the light was, the, the ballpark was sitting at a different angle to the sun than the new park. The light was way better, which sounds completely arcane, but it was just the angle, the, the ballpark was twisted to the sun. The light was a million times better. Candlestick Park had the most incredible light. It was awesome. And it was freezing ass cold at night. During the daytime, it was fine. It was windy. You get dirt blown all over yourself. And it was really cold at night. It was really fucking cold at night. You, you, the fog would roll in way more than at the new place. Right. But it was my first park, so I loved it. Well, I just want you to know, Brad, they can say, they can take away a photographer's ability to make money. They can change technology. The internet can ruin things. But no one can take away the fact that you once probably shot Royce Clayton playing shortstop for the San Francisco Giants. No one can take that away from you. They can't. In his high tops. In his high tops. Uh, Brad, seriously, obviously a huge fan. I've known you forever. We've been friends for a long time. Congrats on the new book. Um, you're one of the greats. You are. And I really appreciate it. Well, thanks, Jeff. I, I can't wait to read your new book. Well, I appreciate that. I want to thank today's guest, Brad Mandon, for joining me on Two Riders Singing Yang. You can follow Brad on Twitter at Brad Mandon and visit his website at mandonphotography.com. If you have a chance and enjoy Two Riders Singing Yang, please go to the vehicle of your choice and leave a nice review. I make no money doing this podcast, and I rely heavily on word of mouth. Music is by the amazing MC Whiteout. Thanks again for joining me, and remember, keep riding. Lots of 